Well, I want to give you a, a little warning. And the warning I want to give you is that we are jumping right into the deep end this morning. You may have picked that up already. Uh, there's no easing in today. There's no messing around. We are jumping straight in. Are you okay with that? If you're not, I'm sorry. That's what we're going to do. Uh, you know, some, someone here I, I'm feeling is like, you know what? I was up at 5 a.m. I have got myself ready. I have got my children ready. I have got my husband ready. I've cooked a lasagna. I, I have been on three trains, two buses. Rachel, I am ready. Bring it on. Who is that? Anyone? Yes, yes. I have not cooked a lasagna this morning, I confess. Um, but we mean business this morning. We're ready to jump in. You see, this, this theme, divine power, it's kind of been sitting in our hearts for several months now. Uh, and we sensed God beginning to sort of craft this word, this revelation uh, within us, and now we're here. It's like we're almost ready to burst with it. That's how it feels. And so we're going to dive straight in by actually jumping back to the beginning, back to the beginning of this whole orchard journey that God has led Amy and I on, and a whole bunch of others who have joined us along the way. And if you are new to the orchard, put your hand up if this is your first orchard experience. Wow! Loads of you. That is amazing. Welcome. Uh, well, hopefully this will also bring you up to speed a little bit uh, with the journey so far. Because several years ago, Amy and I both sensed God speaking to us. Uh, and uh, You'll be glad to hear that's not sort of a rev relatively unusual experience, but the thing was God spoke to us the same thing at the same time, and neither of us at that point were particularly eager to start something that was specifically for women, but God spoke. God spoke really clearly to both of us, and the sense that we both had is that it was time to gather the women. That was the word God imparted to both of our hearts. It's time to gather the women. And at first, to be honest, we wondered if that was just the women in our own churches, uh, but it be quickly became apparent that actually the mandate was much broader than that. And the mandate that we sensed, the outworking of that call to gather the women was to create a space like this where women could come into the presence of God and be liberated from all the stuff that ties us down and trips us up and robs us and empowered to play our part in seeing God's kingdom come. Whatever that may look like, for each one of us, no glass ceilings. And in many ways, all of what I've just said could apply to men as well. And you know, I, I don't, uh, confession, I know I've said this, I've probably said this every time, I, I don't always love all female environments. Any, anyone else want to dare to confess in the middle of a women's conference? Yes, there's a few of us. I, it's not my kind of natural like, yeah, this is me kind of place, but God's sense of humor, he puts that mandate on us. Uh, also, I love guys, I love men, you know, in an appropriate sense, you know. <laughs> I love one man particularly, um, but I, I, I love working alongside men. So it, it seemed a bit unusual. And so part of, part of the journey for Amy and I, we're both pastors of churches. We love ministering to both men and women. So, so part of the journey for us was to discover, to, to uncover with the Lord 
what his desire was and is to create this space that was just for women, specifically for women. And we've come to the conclusion that it is not so that we can reinforce unhelpful gender stereotypes. There will be no references to, to princesses that need rescuing, I assure you. It's not so that we can sing the worship songs in a higher key. You know, we have an opportunity to do that. It's, that's not why we're here. It's not so that there are more toilets to go around, because that's helpful, but that's not why we're here. It's not so, so that finally the guys are available to babysit, you know? That's not why we're here. It's not so that we can have an opportunity just to whinge about all the blokes in our lives. No. It's not so that the women on stage finally have an opportunity to lead because there aren't any guys around who could do a better job, right? That is not why we're here. We're here because we have this, this increasing sense that God's desire to, to gather the women, to gather the women at this time, in this place, has so much more spiritual significance than I think any one of us in this room could even begin to fully realize. I have a strong conviction of that. You know, in the summer, Amy and I met up with uh, Jo Saxton. Anyone come across Jo Saxton? She's an amazing author and speaker. She's coming next year, woo! The Orchard 2023, she's coming next year to speak. We're so excited. And we sat down with her in the summer uh, at this picnic table uh, at a Christian conference. Uh, and Joe said to Amy and I, so tell me, what is The Orchard all about? And I immediately jumped in and I started, you know, waffling on about liberation and empowerment. And I like socked Joe with like my best elevator pitch for The Orchard. And I have to say, it was, it was pretty compelling, uh, I felt. Uh, and Amy sat next to me, smiling and, and nodding encouragingly, as she so often does when I waffle on. If you've listened to the podcast, you will know that already. And then when I began to, to run out of steam, I kind of, I kind of looked at Amy like, and have you got anything to add to that brilliant synopsis of The Orchard? And Amy just paused for a moment thoughtfully and she said, you know what the orchard is? The orchard is warfare. And I was like, <laughs> like, drop the mic. <laughs> yes, the orchard is warfare. And I'm like, that, that is what I was just about to say, actually. <laughs> but there was something about her saying that that just deeply resonated. Just think about that for a second. The orchard is warfare. And if the orchard is warfare, then that means that there is a battle to be fought. And if there is a battle to be fought, that means that there is an enemy to fight. Yeah. I warned you, didn't I, that we are jumping straight into the deep end here. And so if you're taking notes, uh, part one of this message is this, wake up to the spiritual battle. Wake up to the spiritual battle. We're going to open our Bibles, if you've got them now, open them up to Ephesians 6, verse 10. For some of you, these verses are going to be really familiar. 
Others of you, you might be new to the Bible. Ephesians 6, the words are gonna pop up on screen. This is Paul. Paul, the apostle, he is writing to the church in Ephesus to encourage them in their faith. He's writing this about 2,000 years ago, but it is still so profound, of course, because it's the word of God to us today. Here's what he says. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul is saying, we are in a spiritual battle. Paul is saying, the moment that you choose to pursue the kingdom of God in your everyday life, the moment that you begin to build the foundations of your life on the truth of God's word, every time that you make choices that are in line with the gospel, but in contention with the values of the world, we enter into a spiritual battle that is being waged against humanity, specifically against those who have put their faith in Jesus. That is what Paul is telling us. And you know, I think it's important to mention at this point that for some of us in the room, when we, when we hear Christians talking about like the spiritual battle and forces of evil, maybe for some of us, like we, we switch off a little bit. Maybe we find it like a bit uncomfortable or a little bit like freaky, a bit otherworldly. I have to confess that I can sometimes be a bit like that. I am, an, I am like an entirely practical person. And honestly, like over-spiritual, really intense, slightly wacky Christians, they kind of annoy me a little bit, if I'm honest. And it, you know, it's, it, it's those people that think like everything is spiritual attack. Like, I broke a fingernail, ah, it's spiritual attack. You know the ones I mean, right? If you don't know, it's probably because it's you, just to say. But you know there is room for everyone in the kingdom. The wacky ones, you are welcome, you are welcome. But the reason that we feel so compelled by the thing this year is because in order for us to step into divine power, it is essential that we understand what is coming against us. You know, the last few months, I, I have just become increasingly convinced for, of our, our desperate need to just wake up, wake up to the spiritual battle that we find ourselves in. Because I think for most of us, even the ones in the room that have read those verses in Ephesians 6 like millions of times, most of us, most of the time, we live our lives completely oblivious to the rulers and the authorities and the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And I think, I think the, the reason, the reason that often we are so oblivious is because we are programmed by the world just to see our lives in two dimensions. Daryl Johnson, I cannot recommend his books more highly enough. He's done a, a whole uh, a whole book around Ephesians and Revelation. They are incredible resources. Daryl Johnson, make a note, brilliant. He writes this. Most 21st century people have what we call a two-dimensional vision of reality. The two dimensions are number one, the ego, the self, 
and the environment, number two, the environment made up of the physical universe and other selves, other, other human selves, i.e. other people. This reading of reality says that everything that happens in our lives can be explained in terms of those two dimensions. When something goes wrong in life, help, hope, and healing is to be found in one or both of those two dimensions. But Paul, Paul in writing to this church in Ephesus, he is absolutely adamant that we have to really grasp that the present reality of this other dimension, this spiritual dimension is at work, is at play. We need to see differently. That's what Paul is saying. We need to learn to, to see in a different way because what we see massively influences the choices that we make. About 10, 10 or so years ago, Tim and I, uh, we were living in London. Uh, Tim was on the staff team uh, of a church called HTB, um, many of you will know. And I was on like a very, very long maternity leave. Uh, we had had our four birth children in very quick succession. Uh, and so I was pretty much based at home all the time at that time. Uh, and Tim uh, would jump on the underground line and, and head off to HTB to church uh, every day on his way to work. Anyway, out of the blue, Tim buys me a gift. You'd think that that wouldn't be a surprise, right? You know, obviously, but it wasn't my birthday. It wasn't uh, my anniversary. He just spontaneously bought me like this really gorgeous bikini <laughs> out of the blue. It, we weren't even like planning to go on holiday or anything soon. And so I, you know, I did that thing like, oh, this is so lovely. Like, what, what's the catch? Like suspicious, what have you done? What have you done? And he just said he, he just felt like buying me this gift because he loved me so much and he wanted to show it. It's like, oh, I have the best husband in the world. And you know, a, a few days later, we were still kind of, you know, feeling lovey-dovey and basking in the, in the rays of the, the spontaneous bikini love gift. And, <laughs> And it just so happened that we both needed to be at HTB. There was a church event happening, and so we booked a babysitter, uh, and we strolled down to the underground station arm in arm, you know, staring at each other, all gooey-eyed. And I'm thinking, I have married the best man in the world. Obviously, I think that on a daily basis, just to be clear. And so we stood on the platform, like in each other's arms, waiting for the underground train to arrive, and we're standing in like the exact spot where Tim would stand probably every morning on his way to work, and I'm stood there, and, and I just look up at the wall of the underground station immediately in front of me, and there, just a couple of foot from my eyes, is a 10-foot poster of the most gorgeous model wearing the exact same <laughs> bikini that Tim bought me. The exact same bikini. Sadly, she didn't actually look as good in the bikini as I did. You know, poor, poor love. But I, I, I looked at the poster, the penny dropped, and I looked at Tim, and we just wet ourselves laughing. You see, what, what we choose to see massively influences our choices. 
Yeah, doesn't it just? Doesn't it just? And if we're, if we're going to wake up, if we're going to wake up to the, the reality of the spiritual battle that we find ourselves in, then we have to see differently. We need to put on spiritual glasses. Remember these? We need to put on our 3D glasses. We need to see in that third spiritual dimension. This isn't sci-fi, guys. This is reality. Because most of the time, we just spend our everyday existence in those two dimensions. And yet, when we put on our 3D glasses, we become aware. We become suddenly aware of the battle that we're in and a few things about the battle that we become aware of. Number one, we realize that the battle, it's not, it's not a battle of equals. It's not a battle of equals. The enemy, just to be clear, the enemy is not an equal opposite to God, not by a long way. The enemy is, it's a, he's, a, he's a heavenly being who has fallen and his sole objective is to turn is to turn people away from God. And although the enemy puts up a, a pretty good fight, ultimately the enemy is no match for God. We can be rest assured with that because the second thing, the second thing to discover about the, the spiritual battle when we put our 3D glasses on is that the outcome of the battle has already been determined. We can be absolutely sure of that, that, that when our Savior, Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross for our sake, for our sin, and, and then when he rose from the grave three days later, we were singing about it this morning, we can be absolutely assured that in that moment, in that resurrection moment, every evil power that was set against God was completely undermined. We can stand on that truth. And yes, yes, we all know we still feel the effects of the battle, but the war is won. The outcome is final. But there is a third key thing that we discover about the spiritual battle when we put on our three-dimensional spiritual glasses. When we're bold enough to dare to look beyond the reality of those two dimensions that we often see just right in front of us. And the third thing is this. There is a strategic battle plan aimed specifically at women. What we discover is that since the beginning, a key part, one key part of the enemy's strategic battle plan is aimed directly at women. Let me just say that again. What we discover about the spiritual battle when we put our 3D glasses on is that a key part of the enemy's strategic battle plan is aimed directly, deliberately, specifically at women, at you, for the very fact that God has made you to carry his heart, his voice, his kingdom, his heart for women in you. Daniel Strickland, does anyone come across Daniel Strickland? I feel like I'm doing a bit of name dropping this morning. I don't mean to do that. Uh, Danielle Strickland, she's one of my heroes. I love her. Again, an amazing communicator and author. And I love any time that I have had the opportunity to spend in her company. And when I do, I have to like, work really hard just to act cool, you know? You know what I mean? 
Anyway, I remember chatting to her earlier this year, and she said, she said the, the, this thing to me, and, and it, was, it, was something, it was something like this. This is what she said, something like this. When you think about it, all the hatred towards women over the centuries, all the brutal misogyny and sexism, all the sexual violence, all the abuse, all the oppression, all the warped theology, it doesn't make sense if all that was just the work of human hands. Because generally speaking, women are great. Like, women are really nice. This is what she said. Women are really helpful. Like, we contribute so much good stuff to society. The only logical explanation is that behind all the horrors, all the inequality that women have had to endure precisely because we are women, there has to be a demonic, dark, spiritual force aimed specifically at women that is so often worked out by human hands. I was like, wow, wow. And you know, over the years, there have been uh, plenty of philosophers and theologians and sociologists and psychologists and biologists and neurologists and any other ologists that you can think of. All, of. all of them have offered these theories, these theories to the world about where this hatred for women comes from. And pretty much all of them end up with different conclusions as to whether it's, it's a nature thing or whether it's a nurture thing. Maybe, maybe it's something like inherent within human beings, or, or maybe it's like learned behavior that is passed down through generations. And, and there's probably truth in both of those theories, but it excludes the possibility that there might be something else. It excludes the possibility of seeing beyond the two dimensions, putting on our spiritual glasses. Are, are you following me? Oh, that wasn't very convincing. Uh, yes, good. Woo! And so it's when we put on our three-dimensional glasses that perhaps we come to realize that maybe there's something else going on. It's when we put on our spiritual glasses that we realize that the problem began right at the beginning. So we're going to jump into Genesis 1, verse 27. The very beginning. So God created humankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, in increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over, and then God lists all the creatures of the earth that they're to rule over. And so what we read in those first few verses, right at the beginning, God created male and female. He says to both of them, be fruitful, Increase, like just think about the increase bit is impossible without both of them. Just think about that for a minute. It is both of them, right? I, I won't need to go into any more detail. Be fruitful, increase, subdue, rule. He says it to both. And in the scripture, in the English translation that we read, in the original Hebrew, there is absolutely no sense of hierarchy, none whatsoever. God makes them equally in his image. He gives them both exactly the same leadership mandates, the same leadership instructions. They are to fulfill God's mandate as equal partners. 
both bringing their equal and unique expression of leadership to the earth. That was the plan. That was the plan. And then something happens. We just need to read on a few more verses to know what that is. The, the serpent, the enemy, tempts the woman. She falls for his pack of lies and she eats the fruit from the forbidden tree. And in that moment, the enemy gets a foothold. And the relationship between men and women, men and women is altered. Suddenly, hierarchy is established. Man exerts his power and his strength and his authority over women, and it was never meant to be that way. And so as we put on our spiritual glasses, and we, we take a glance through the books of history, through the lens of history, I don't think it's a leap to conclude that this catastrophic moment that happened at the beginning, it plays itself out in a million different destructive ways. Gender-based violence, sexual abuse, rape, child marriage, forced marriage, female genital mutilation, religious and ideological oppression, the crippling weight of the domestic load, slavery, human trafficking, the sex industry, pornography, everyday sexism, the objectification of the female body, honor killings, selective abortions, pay gaps, the list goes on. And if you're in any doubt, listen to this from the writers of the book, Half the Sky. They say this, more girls have been killed in the last 50 years precisely because they were girls than men were killed in all the battles of the 20th century. More girls are killed in this routine genocide in any one decade than people were slaughtered in all the genocides of the 20th century. Don't you think it just must break God's heart? But it plays out in, in more subtle ways too. Some of those issues seem so far away from us. There might be some in the room for whom those issues aren't so far away. We want to create space to pray, to minister to one another. But sometimes, for many of us, they play out in more subtle ways that feel closer to home. You know, a couple of years ago, uh, through the help of a skilled and godly counselor, I, I, I had this revelation about one of the things that was undermining all that God was calling me to do. Uh, this, speaking, leading, and this thing was undermining me from stepping more fully into those things. Uh, and what I realized is that subconsciously, uh, I was looking constantly for, for the approval of the most important man in the room. And for such a long time, I would experience like these high levels of shame after I, uh, I, I preached or, or spoke somewhere or led publicly, like really high levels of shame. And those feelings of shame were so intense that many times I would like step off the stage and just think, I am never doing that again. I am never putting myself through that again. And as I began with this counselor to unpick some of what was going on, I, I realized that if, if the most important man in the room, as I deemed him to be, didn't go out of his way to encourage me, even if everybody else in the room did encourage me, I would leave that room feeling like a failure. And that's where the shame would come from. Now, it wasn't the guy's fault. Like, he didn't know that I was putting this big weight of responsibility upon his shoulders, but somehow, somewhere along the way, the enemy 
energized this narrative that I needed somehow the, the approval, the validation of this man in the room when, when the truth was all I needed was the validation of my heavenly father. And so what do we do with all this? What do we do with all of this? This is such a key question. This is the pivotal point. What do we do? You know, I, I don't know about you, but I hear that list. When I wrote that list, I want to scream. I want to cry. I want to shout at God, this is not right. This is not fair. How could this happen? Why is it the way that it is? And you know, there is nothing wrong with that response. In fact, sometimes that is the most appropriate way to pray. And I have to confess, God has wired me with like some fight in my belly. I'm the type of person that will pick a fight with the old granny that, that parks in the parent-only parking bay. Like that's me. And God has actually had to teach me over the years how to pick my battles wisely. But this is a different kind of battle, you know? This is a different kind of battle that needs a different kind of weapon, a different kind of power. Honestly, I hear that list and I wanna start picking up the weapons of the world. I wanna start picking up revenge. I wanna get even. I wanna grab the power back, thank you very much. That's what my flesh is screaming out. I wanna pick up the weapon of aggression, you know, of power over. I wanna pick up the weapon of offense. We have every right to feel offended, but it's a worldly weapon. I wanna pick up the weapon of militant feminism that says we hate men, down with the men. That's not right. We're called to lead together in harmony. I wanna pick up the weapon of cancel culture. Anyone that doesn't think like me, let's cancel them. Let's block them out of the history books. These are not the weapons that we're called to pick up. And when I feel that bubbling up inside me, I hear the gentle whisper of the Holy Spirit saying, Rachel, walk a different way. Walk a different way. I hear the words of 2 Corinthians 10, 3 that says, though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with, they are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Who wants to see some strongholds that have held women captive demolished? I do. I do. And as I heard that whisper from the Holy Spirit, I, I sensed him leading me towards the book of Revelation. Revelation four and five. And so the second part, which is much shorter than the first part, FYI, is this. Part two, learn to walk in the way of the lion and the lamb. So what do we do in the face of the battle? What do we do to take our stand against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms? What do we do when we come up against injustice and inequality and oppression? We choose to walk in the way of the lion and the lamb. This is radically counterintuitive. This is radically countercultural. These are the words from Revelation 4 and 5. At the beginning of Revelation, just to set the scene, the apostle John, he is invited by an angel to put on 
spiritual glasses. In fact, one of the, the most frequent commands in the book of Revelation, it appears over and over and over again, is look, look. Look with new eyes. Look with spiritual glasses. And at the time, John is exiled on this remote island because the political authorities at that time deem him dangerous because of his his uncompromising faith in Jesus. At that time, Christians are being executed in huge numbers. They're being persecuted, and yet the church is growing. It's exploding. The battle is raging, and John is invited on this remote island in exile to put on his spiritual glasses, to see beyond the two dimensions of where he finds himself in that moment, to look spiritually into what is happening at that present moment, but on the spiritual dimension. And we find it in Revelation. And what we find in Revelation is a throne room. Uh, This is the control center of the whole of the universe. And in the throne room, there is a king, a king who sits on the throne. And this king is victorious. He's victorious and he holds in his hand a scroll. And this scroll contains within it the destiny for humankind. It holds within it the outcome of the battle. There is a lot going on in this scene as we read it. We don't need to understand it all right now. In fact, I'm going I'm to jump a couple of verses, but let's read this together. Revelation 4, and then we're going to jump to Revelation 5. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open to heaven. He's got his glasses on. And the voice I heard first speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here. I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Jump to Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy? to break the seals and open the scroll. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep, see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll. Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, killed, standing at the center of the throne. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. And they sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands, tens of thousands times tens thousands. They circled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and 
and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. When we put our spiritual glasses on, we see that that scene is taking place right now, right now. It's be played out right now. Jesus is the one on the throne. And when we see present reality with our 3D glasses on like John did, we see the throne. We see the throne of heaven and earth. It is occupied because the one who sits on the throne is victorious. He's victorious and it's Jesus. Jesus is the lion and Jesus is the lamb. He's the lion. He's the conquering king. He's full of strength and authority. You know, the, the ferocious lion that roars in the face of injustice. The lion who who is fiercely protective over his creation. And you know, we we are called to be like the lion, to stand in our strength and our authority that comes when we know that we are adopted children of God. We we too are to roar in the face of injustice. But, But look again, look again. Look at the one who sits on the throne. The one, the only one who is worthy to open the scroll, to uncover the destiny of humankind. It's the lamb. It's the innocent lamb. It's the sacrificial lamb who laid down his life. Now, when I, when I look at inequality and, and oppression and so much of that that, that, that women face today, now, I, I, honestly, I want the lion on the throne. I do. I, I want the lion. I want the terrifying power of the lion. But seated on the throne in victory is the lamb the slain lamb, and it's Jesus. Jesus who chose to die for us. Jesus who died in our place for our sake. Jesus who laid it all down, laid down his life for every single one of us. He is the king who wins by losing, by laying down his power. So what is divine power? What does it look like? It's laying down our weapons. It's laying down our power. Laying down the weapons of the world. It's surrender. It's forgiveness. What is divine power? It's the lamb. It's the lamb who was slain. Daryl Johnson again says it like this. The greatest power in the universe is the weakness of sacrificial love. Just, Just let me be absolutely clear for a second. If, if you or anyone else that you know is living right now in an abusive relationship, laying down your power does not mean staying put. Get help and get out. If, if you see inequality and sexism at play in your workplace, laying down your power does not mean staying silent speak up, speak out. 
Laying down our power is a heart posture. It's what happens when we look at the world through these 3D spiritual glasses. It's when we can see the throne, when we can see the one who sits on the throne. It's when we ultimately know that the battle is won. Laying down your power is not resignation. Laying down your power is not simply just accepting the world as it is. Let's just hang on in here until we get to heaven. No, far from it. In fact, Amy tonight is going to unpack more of what it means for us to, to live out, live out this divine power. Laying down our power means that we engage with a new power source. Laying down our power means that we, we lay down the old weapons in order that we can pick up a new set of tools, divine tools with divine power. I want to invite the band to come up. And I just want to end with this story. And then we're going to have a few moments to pray together. Um, one of the pastors of our church, a guy called Tim Muller. Cheer for Tim Muller if you know him. Yeah, little one. Wow. Um, he, he's, he's a beloved member of our staff team and congregation, so you need to know that. He shared this story with me this week. And, and he, as, as part of what he does in his role at, at our church, is he works alongside a growing community of Farsi-speaking people in our church. And most of them come from either Iran or Afghanistan. Many of them have Muslim backgrounds. And I asked Tim to write down this story that he told me. Uh, and, and this is what he wrote. This happened like literally a, a, week, a week or so ago. He said this, experience with the occult is quite common in Iran. One of our guys became a Christian a few months ago and was beginning to have flashbacks from his previous occult experiences and facing real spiritual attack, waking up at 3 a.m. with strange presences in his room, etc. He's new to faith and has never read the Old Testament. Remember that, he has never read the Old Testament. One Friday night at Farsi Group, he came forward for prayer ministry to be freed from this dark spiritual oppression. I prayed with him and he started shaking and then suddenly it stopped. I asked him what happened. He looked quite shocked and said, I had this crazy vision. I just saw something, spiritual glasses on. I was in the desert and on one side of me was this tent. Again, never read the Old Testament. Those of you familiar with the Old Testament that you know, tents are significant. One side of me was this tent, but it was a very holy tent I could tell I wasn't allowed to go in there because it was so holy and I was scared of how special it was. On the other side of me was this, was this odd looking box. Ring any bells? Again, those that know the Old Testament. It had these things poking out of each corner. Sound familiar? Like horns and wings or something. He's never read the Old Testament. Did I mention that? Anyway, he carries on. A man came along and sacrificed what looked like a sheep and put its blood on the box. When he did this, the darkness around me couldn't stand it anymore and had to run away. Isn't that nuts? Tim, Tim goes on to say, he asked me what I thought it was. I said, it was obviously Moses' tabernacle from the Old Testament. He asked, what's that? I Googled a picture of it. Don't know how it's on Google, anyway. 
somebody clever figured it out. I Googled a picture of it and showed it to him and he nearly loses his mind. That's what I saw. Tim's like, my mind is now also blown. So Tim said, I told him the Holy Spirit showed him this scene, which was a foreshadowing of what Jesus did on the cross to demonstrate the very real power of Jesus's blood, the sacrificial lamb in the supernatural realms. How incredible is that? Tim writes that, but I agree. This is what divine power truly looks like, he says. We get an insight into what is happening in the spiritual realms the human eye cannot see. At the mention of Jesus' name, darkness flees. Darkness cannot stand against the blood of Jesus. That's real divine power. Amen. Why don't we stand? We're going to have loads of time for prayer ministry throughout the day in the seminars. We've got loads of time tonight in our session this evening. We really believe that God is wanting to meet with us in a powerful way. And the invitation this morning is come. Put on your spiritual glasses. Come to the throne room. Look. Really look. Look who's on the throne. I don't know what is being played out in the two dimensions of your life right now. But in this moment, look. Look with spiritual eyes. Look at the throne. Look at the throne. It's the Lamb on the throne, slain for me, slain for you, that we might be able to walk in divine power. His power made perfect in our weakness. We're going to worship together, and then we're going to ask the Lord what He wants to do before we head off into lunch.